Well, I'm getting my junk set up here. You know, uh, about a month ago, Pastor asked me to fill in for a couple of Sundays. And my first emotion was fear. And my sec- second emotion, yeah, I know. I'm a teacher, by the way, for those of you that don't know me. Um, my second emotion was uh, what I'm speaking on today. Because uh, it's pretty important that we uh, know ourselves, right? <laughs> and um, I have been through uh, some interesting things, I think, over the last few years. It's been about five years, actually, since I've actually been able to share. And um, so anyway, as I was, let me get back to what I was talking about. Um, Pastor Aaron asked me to do this, and I thought, well, you know, I was gone for a couple of years. And um, earlier I'd been asked to do something else in church, and I started started to avoid people and avoid that situation. I don't know if Shelly knows what I'm talking about, but I was avoiding some things that I probably should have maybe forced myself through. But then on the other hand, I didn't want to do that either. Um, and I started to look inside of myself and find out, to try to discover why that was. And I thought, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a teacher, and so what I do, I'm a teacher professionally is what I mean by that. Um, I, uh, I, I know how to prepare a presentation, and I know how to deliver a message in some respects, but I didn't want to do that um, because, first of all, that's not what this is about. This is about me trying to minister out of who I am. And so I started to internalize some things and I started to reflect and I started to think, you know, what is it that's affecting me and impacting me? And so I finally came up with, you know, a, a, this message. And so I got into this message. You'll find out in just a second. I'll give it to you. I will. Um, I got into this message and I started to prepare it and I had a, a PowerPoint and I started to get frustrated and I almost threw my computer through the window and I just because I couldn't get it to work straight and right and all of a sudden I realized that I wasn't actually listening to my own message. And so about halfway through the week and I had emailed Mr. Gage in the back the, the actual PowerPoint that I did develop and I thought, well, I've got to work with it because I'm not going to email him again because he already worked so hard on it. But I stopped myself and I thought... I need to minister out of who I am, out of what God has really made me and what he's made me do. And so I started to reflect on some things, and I came up with one primary focal point. And this is the focal point, and it's for me. I can speak for myself, if you guys are okay with that. And if you agree, then you can, you know, nod your heads politely, whatever you'd like to do. But what I'd like to say is this. For me, in my Christian walk, the primary, most important thing, the foundational thing, and I'm talking about other than salvation and things of that nature, but the foundational thing is a correct image of who God really is and my relationship with him. So that foundational belief determines your walk. It determines your sense of passion. It determines the entire relationship paradigm. It determines... How often you go to God, how you relate to him in every single way, and it determines how you actually relate to each other. It determines how you feel when you look in the mirror every morning. It is based off of that single thing is what primarily dictates how we live our lives. And as a Christian, it gets 
tired. Well, let me just say this again. As an American Christian, it gets tiresome. You get weary. We get worn down. We get worn out. And I had to ask myself, why? Why? Why would Jesus go to the cross? Why would he do all of that? And why would he do it joyfully? Without any complaining, what was it that he knew? And by the way, I know this. I've heard it, but I'm still getting this on the inside of who I am. But the primary thing is this. To understand where we come from, we have to understand who God is and who he really made us. Now, I know that that sounds like jargon and Christian jargon, and it is, and you hear it in almost every church. But I hope after today, I hope that I've shared with you a little bit, and I hope it's been impacting on you. So my initial sense here, and I'm a big Goonies fan. I don't know if anybody knows what the Goonies are. But there's this line in there that says, shame, shame, I know your name. So I was thinking, like, you know what, shame, shame, I do know your name. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about shame. I'm talking to shame. And so my whole point and the whole message today is about shame and how it impacts us and how it impacts our lives and actually not just us, but how it impacted the entire course of world history. So is everybody okay with that? All right. So let's go ahead and move on here. Uh, let me see if I got this straight. Do I need to turn anything on on this? Oh, that's right. Sorry, Mike. You told me. There we go. One more. Okay. Well, oh, shoot. Nope. We don't want to go there. All right. So we're going to go ahead and start with a scripture. Um, Genesis 3. Uh, how many of you have read Genesis 3 before? Okay. <laughs> That's what I thought. So I thought you're pretty familiar with it, right? Um, I was, I'm familiar with it as well. I've read it hundreds of times. I have heard Pastor Aaron preach on it before. I have heard other preachers preach on it before. I've listened to it. And I've heard numerous different, uh, you know, versions of what people thought was going on here. I can tell you that in Genesis 3, you could probably preach for a year or two on all of the different components and different, you know, you know, parts of this and messages that you can get out of the wisdom in Genesis 3. So we're primarily looking at it now as the entrance of shame into the world. So let's go ahead and start. So it says, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? That's a stupid thing to ask, right? Because, of course, that's what fruit and trees are for. What else would they have eaten? So I'm thinking, why? What's his angle? We know it was a bad angle, but what's his angle? So she says, of course, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. Of course. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Okay. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I started asking questions about this when I was a little kid. Grew up in a church. My grandfather was a pastor, and I'll bet I got the same answer that a lot of you got if you ever asked questions about this. And it was like, well, you know, they really, they did really die spiritually, so they were, they were spiritually dead. I'm not, I'm not combating that at all. But can I maybe present another view of this, if that's okay? The tree that they're talking about that was in the middle of the garden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Would we all agree on that? 
Most theologians would agree on that, right? And my little mind was wondering, I'm like, why did God put that in the garden in the first place? If it was trouble. I mean, you know, that's like putting, uh, you know, uh, Krispy Kreme next to a person who's having a hard time controlling their weight and everything. So it's, it doesn't make any sense. Why would we put that temptation there? So why would we do that? And I'm going to be honest with you, I've gone through a number of different versions in my own head about why that happened. And even last night, I wasn't exactly sure what to say to you today. And I wasn't sure why and how to explain it. Now, I would at this point bring somebody up, but I don't want to belabor the point because I know we only have so much time this morning and I'm doing pretty well right now, so I don't want to get off track. But imagine your child in a beautiful place. This place has everything they could possibly want. Every healthy food. Oh, by the way, everything they could possibly want that's good for them. Let me rephrase that. Everything that they could possibly eat that's healthy for the body. Every, every experience that's healthy for the mind and for the soul. Every at- atmospheric you know, um, criteria that they need to be a healthy, happy, whole human being, right? And then in the middle, there's this thing. So imagine you go up to your child and you say this. Child, I have given you everything you could possibly want. Everything. But I love you. And I love you so much that I'm not going to take choices away from you. In this world, there are choices that you can make. They're unhealthy. And this one right here is unhealthy. And because I love you so much, I'm telling you that this is not for you. You were not made for this. You were made for the beauty and the wholesomeness of what is around it. Trust me, I love you more than you could possibly know at this point. I want nothing but the best for you. But know this, that if you ever do partake, that it will destroy the relationship that we now have. So stay away from it. So in order for that tree to work where it is, and in order for God to give us free will and to be able to actually allow us to make these decisions on our own, that choice was there. It's the only thing that I can think of at this point as to why it was there. Now, can you imagine, because you all know what's going to happen, right? Can you imagine how upset you would be if you gave your child everything? Now, none of us have given any of our children everything. I'm talking if you were the absolute perfect parent in the perfect situation and you gave them everything they could possibly want. Why would they choose to be less? Or why would they choose to think that they needed more? Well, that's what happened. So this crafty little serpent comes in and says, uh, you won't die. <laughs> you won't die. And you know what's funny is that he actually was telling the truth. But was he talking about the same death that God was talking about? No, no, no. So, so he replies this. He says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So the first thing he does is he attacks 
the image of God. Think of some cruddy little friend of your child that comes up and says, oh, your parents don't love you. <laughs> what do they know? Marijuana, alcohol, whatever it is. It's all right. So they attack the image. And remember, we act out of the image. Our foundation is our image of God. So the woman was convinced. Right then, her image was destroyed. Right then, she stopped trusting God. And she chose to do something that she was asked not to do. And she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. Now, I want to stop there for just a second. How could you be in the middle of the Garden of Eden and have the most glorious home ever, beauty beyond anything we can probably imagine, foods unlike anything we've probably ever seen, they probably passed away thousands and thousands of years ago, and how could you actually look at another tree and go like, oh, and set your eyes on that thing? So somehow that image got damaged, right? Okay, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. We know the rest of the story. At that moment, their eyes were opened. What were their eyes open to? Well, we know the knowledge of good and evil, right? Okay. But their eyes were opened to good and bad things that they were incapable of making the judgment on. When God asks us to do, when he asks them to not delve into this part of the garden, he's saying, be like me. I love you. Be like me in love, but right now you don't have the ability, the intelligence, the depth to make this decision in your life. That's not why you were created. We were created to be children. We were created to love God. We were created to have a relationship with him that was about love and security It was never supposed to be about determining from right and wrong. Now, I know that that sounds weird, but can you hear me out before we get to the end here, okay? So let's process through this. So, at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. Suddenly. Now, I don't know about you guys, and who knows how long Adam and Eve were there, but they were naked the whole time, by the way, just to let you know. And then all of a sudden, they just looked down, and they're like, oh. I'm naked? So why? How'd that happen? Why did it happen? Well, we know that they sewed fig leaves and they they covered themselves. And and we know that then all of a sudden it must have been a regular event where God was coming in the cool of the evening. So God comes and the breezes were blowing and the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. So now not only have their eyes been opened, now not only have they realize that they were naked and now the first bit of shame has come in but they're afraid right so now they're afraid and it's like oh my gosh okay uh do you think that god was ticked off 
Do you think that the day before they were afraid of him? The, the day before, were they like sewing fig leaves to cover up their private parts? So the only thing that happened, of course, was that they ate from this tree and their eyes were opened to things that they were never intended on having their eyes open to. And now they're shameful. Now they're seeing lack in the Garden of Eden. How do you have lack in the perfect place? And now they're afraid. So God calls to the man. He says, where are you? Well, he replies, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? So my question is, who told you you were naked? Who told us that we were naked? Who told us that we had lack? Who told us that we weren't good enough? Who told us that we had to measure up? Who told us that we had to do something or that we had to be better in order to meet the standards that were placed there for us? Who told us? Who told us that I had to be a better Christian? Who told us I had to dress right? Who told us that I had to grow taller or grow shorter or grow? Well, I don't know why you'd want to grow shorter. But who told us that I had to lose weight? Who told us? Who told you that you weren't good looking enough? Who told you you weren't smart enough? Who told you you weren't good enough? Who told you? Now think about church. In church, who told you that you weren't good enough to speak and fill in? For the pastor who's on sabbatical in Arizona. Who told you that you shouldn't probably take communion today because you're not worthy? Who told you that there are other Christians sitting in the front row that must be better than you? Who told you? Was it God? Well, it wasn't it wasn't God. So if it wasn't God, then who in the world must have told you that? Well, I'm looking at this again on my computer up here, and I'm pretty sure that the whole point of what I'm going on about is that every bit of shame that was ever introduced into the world, every bit of comparison, every bit of measuring up, every process in this system that we live in that demands something from you, that tells you that you're not good enough, that makes you work harder, that makes you measure up, that makes you have to do something to fulfill worth in yourself is absolutely an unadulterated Lie straight out of the mouth of the devil. Now, I know. At this point, you're probably going through exactly the same things that I was. I'm like, i uh, I got to work through this. But I'm going to tell you that the whole point of our existence is not to labor. 
The whole point of our existence is not to strain. The whole point of our existence is not to try to produce something to make somebody else happy or proud or whatever it is. The whole point of our existence is to spend time enjoying our God. The whole point of our existence is to spend time so that he can enjoy us. The whole point of your existence is to be like a child in the arms of a father who loves us so abundantly beyond anything we can ever imagine that we never have to question our worth, that we never have to exist in a world that questions our worth. Now, when I'm saying that, I don't mean that you don't have to live here and that you need to die and go to heaven before you experience that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we don't have to be in that mindset. We don't have to exist in that life. Make sense? Okay, so let's, let's continue on here because I know I've only got so much time. Um, I need you to understand that the accuser, the devil, is the one who brought this system to us. And the moment that Adam and Eve partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were poisoned. And they put on, their eyes were opened. The problem is that when their eyes were opened, their eyes had little lenses, and they were the tree of the knowledge of good and evil lenses. And now they saw the world as a harsh, dangerous place, as a judgmental, mean existence. So is it any wonder that when God said, hey, where are you? They heard a mean, angry voice. That when God started walking through the garden looking for them, instead of hearing, they heard, I mean, just think about it. You were never afraid of your parents until you did something wrong, right? Right? So when, they, when you're, you know what, it's like my dog. When I go home, I'm not calling you a dog, but when I go home and my dog is cowering on the carpet and she's like, mm, and looking away from me, I know she did something wrong. She's in existence, she's, in, she's a creation, right? So, she, so animals feel shame to some extent, probably, at least, right? So the whole point of this is that today we're still living in this. Even in the church, as a matter of fact, the church might be worse. I mean, right? So we might actually be worse than the actual world. And the world lives in that system, but we have incorporated it so readily into what we, and I'm saying we, I'm not saying necessarily us, us, but we as, a, as, a, as, an, as an American church in particular, but as a worldwide church, we have mastered guilt. That's how we control people. That's how we make sure that they pay their tithe. I thought God wanted a cheerful giver, not a guilty giver. So when we're looking at this today, do we still believe this lie? So when I'm not saying, I'm not saying that if you ever have an opportunity to do something, that you shouldn't prepare for it and that you shouldn't do it extremely well and that you shouldn't groom yourself in the morning and put a nice shirt on. I'm not saying that you shouldn't try. What I'm saying is that what's the center and the motivation for what you're doing? Is it out of fear? Is it because you're afraid or because you have a shameful-based idea and identity? Or is it because 
It's who you are. Is it because it's out of love? Is it because it's out of an assurance? Because I'm going to tell you right now, I, I feel good because I've kind of worked through some of these things because I'm looking at you right now and I'm thinking, these are my fellow children. I'm seeing you. Not for the first time, but I'm saying I'm seeing you and I'm seeing friends and I'm seeing family and I'm seeing and I'm not I'm not sitting here thinking, whereas maybe a couple of years ago, I might have been thinking, oh, what are they? Oh, somebody just went to sleep. OK, that's great. Oh, geez. Um, all right. OK, so they've got a frown on their face. Wait a minute. They clock, They cross their arms. You know, that's the universal symbol for resistance, right? I'm not I'm not going to do that. And, and by the way, just to let you know, remember, I, once again, we'll go back to this. I'm a teacher. And if you want to know a shame-based system, before you think, just hear me out for a second. I'm not saying I have the hardest job in the world. I'm not. But before you think you work in a shame-based system, just think about what I do. I get, to, I get shame-based, and then I get to shovel shame all over the place every single day. And I have to manage that. Right? The only difference is that we're adults and my kids are 10 years old or five or 18. I say we put our feet down hard and I say that we stop believing the lie. You see, we were never meant to live like this. We were never meant to live with that disequilibrium. It was never meant to be part of who we were. All right. I want to show you something. What feelings does this bring up in you? A couple of kids. Do you think those parents are screaming and yelling at those children? Do you think that they're, uh, they've pulled out an evaluation sheet and they said, well, you did that, but you didn't do that. I guess no dessert for you tonight. Think that's what's going on? Nah, it's pretty fun. What about that? Do you think that, that dad's about to look down and go, get your finger out of your mouth, you little slob? <laughs> this is my favorite. You want a picture of our relationship with God? I don't know that it gets any better than that. That was what we were meant to be. That's what we were meant to be. I'm pretty sure that that baby right now is learning to enjoy his parents. And obviously his parents are learning to enjoy him or her. I can't tell. I can guarantee you that this life that we were given was never meant to be one of stress and strain and pain and anxiety. It was meant to be like that. Now, that is not the world we live in, is it? Not even close. Because in a few years, when this little person wets the bed for the 180th day of in a row, this little person might get in trouble. Or when this little person starts to get older and can't read. Or when this little person meets an angry grandparent. Or when this little person exhibits behaviors that aren't easy to take care of. Maybe at church. Maybe at school when they get a little bit older. I can guarantee you that this little person right here might start to learn and more than likely will, just like all of us did, that they were naked. See, because this little person right now doesn't care that it's naked 
When my son was born, he peed all the way across the, uh, the room and hit his step-grandmother at the time. And he did not care. He experienced no shame whatsoever. When I wiped his poopy butt, he wasn't like, oh, I'm so embarrassed about this whole thing. He didn't say that. He didn't know what shame was. So we have to learn it. We have to be indoctrinated into the system of shame. So that poor little thing is probably going to start experiencing it at some point very, very soon. So what can we do? Who told you that you were naked? Who told you? Well, I can tell you who told you. Once again, it was that accuser. So who told you you were naked? Who told you that you were ugly or undesirable? Who told you you were stupid, defective? Who told you you were worthless? Uh, that you need to measure up, that you need to perform, that you need to be something better? Who told you that God will damn you if you don't produce results? On my trip to church today, I heard multiple worship songs that were basically saying, you need to measure up. That was a Christian radio station. That toxic nature of shame is killing us. And not only does it kill us, it kills our desire to do anything about it. So, I like what Jesus says about me. Uh, that we are clothed in righteousness. So, I wouldn't say we're naked anymore, but who cares, right? We're clothed in righteousness. We are beautiful and desirable. We're brilliant. That we're worth his death. That we have more than enough. That we're already accepted. That we are free of judgment and condemnation and wrath. That we are free, most importantly, to enjoy God. You want to be able to overcome a lot of those things? You want to be able to be like somebody else? You don't have to be. All you need to do is spend time with God. You want those things to start to happen? You want to start answering questions in your life? Just spend time with God. Just make him a friend. Those things will naturally happen. See, Adam and Eve, that's what they had. They had that beautiful walk in the park. (laughs) What a nice park it was. So let's move on. I want to take a look at Hebrews 12, and let's look at this. We started off with how shame came into the world, right? Now let's look at how it left. You ready? Oh, by the way, this is a good news, bad news scenario. Good news. Shame got destroyed at the cross. Bad news. It happened 2,000 years ago. Let's get on the, on the ball here, right? Let's see, let's see ourselves rightly. So look at this. It says, because of the joy awaiting him. Because of the joy awaiting him. What joy? The joy. See, Jesus knew this whole thing. He knew. Okay, I am going to fix this problem. We are going to set this straight. I'm going to destroy this system and I'm going to free my people. That's the joy. He endured the cross. Disregarding its what? Oh, he endured the cross. By the way, interesting little side note here. You know, you see all those movies where Jesus is being crucified? Did you know that in actuality, when you get crucified, you're naked? Anybody think that's coincidental? Adam and Eve put on these new lenses and recognized that they were naked. 
And Jesus was naked and put on new lenses. Didn't disregarded the shame. Another word for disregarded is condemned. So on the cross, shame was condemned. Jesus took back our worldview. He took back everything that we lost in the garden. He took back the system. The one that said you are whole and you are worth everything. And I'm going to prove it to you. The one that says you are as good as you're ever going to get. My new theme for this, my new title would be how can you improve perfection? Tell me how. So, disregarding its shame, he disregarded the shame. He took care of a shame-based system, and for it, what did he get? A place of honor beside the throne. And the beautiful thing about it is this, Ephesians 2, 6, For he raised us from the dead along with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. And I know i got to hustle here, but here's the thing. And I know that we're stuck in this cruddy, cruddy system, but I'm going to tell you that you don't get out of a cruddy, cruddy, cruddy system with your efforts. Because all you do, and I don't know about you guys, but some of us are better at doing things than others, right? And you know what? It doesn't matter. If I have just an amazing amount of discipline, if I'm still operating in a shame-based system, I am just going from one cruddy crud pile to another. And the only way to get out of the crud pile is to get out of the system entirely and to believe what God said about me. Because, check it out. It just keeps getting better. God seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. And it's far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. So not only, not only are we seated next to Jesus, well, next to God, we're seated in Christ, not when we die, right now. Okay, we are there now. We can operate and access it now. We don't have to wait until the cool breezes go ahead and mist through the garden to go for a walk in the afternoon. We can do it in the morning. We can do it one o'clock in the morning. We could do it right now if you want to. As a matter of fact, doesn't it sound like it'd be a great way to just live our constant life? To have one foot with Jesus in the throne and the other foot in this world so that we don't have to be... I guess at the mercy of this horrible system. Now, really quickly, I just want to say that if we have faith in this, we can live a life free of all of these things. Because God has already provided everything for us. And he's sitting and waiting. I heard a song this morning that said, Jesus, come. And I'm sitting and going, no, he's saying, you come. I'm sorry. Listen, he's saying that to us. He's already, he's here. He's with us. He's here. He's waiting for us to realize who we are. He's waiting for us to see him for who he really is and for what he did for us. 
So I want to just go ahead and do a paraphrase. This is um, by Dr. Greg Boyd. I love this paraphrase. Hebrews 11.1 1 is always giving me a hard time. I can't wrap my, my mind around it. And I want you to look at this. We, we all know this. And if you don't, you will in just a second. So faith is a reality-like vision of what you hope. So let me do it again. It's a reality-like vision of what you hope for, an antici- for, for or anticipate that creates the feeling that it is so, even though you don't see or experience it yet. So it's a vision of what you're hoping for or what you anticipate to come, even though it hasn't experienced yet. Well, have any of you ever wanted a Christmas tree? Is it in your house? Where do you get the motivation to go buy one? Have any of you ever wanted to do something special for somebody else? Maybe a husband, a wife, maybe a child? Where did that desire come from? Do you know that you're operating in faith in a lot of ways, and yet we don't even realize it? So all I have to do is sit and think and imagine I have... Something inside of me that's amazing. And I can do this. Or this can happen in my life. I can get a degree. And I don't have to be part of that shame-based system. I can be successful in my job. And I don't have to be a part of that shame-based system. And all I have to do is start to see what God said about me. And made me to do in order for it to start to become an actual reality. And the most important thing is that image. And then that image creates a feeling. And that feeling starts to roll up on the inside of me. And it creates power. The creative power. You know that creative power that actually produced results way back in the day when God said light be and light was? That exists on the inside of me. And the more I do that and practice that, the more I can actually transform into exactly what God wanted me to be. So I want you to try something really quickly before we start and go to communion. Two things. Start practicing this. They're really easy. First of all, take time to revert to a childlike experience in God, with God, enjoying God. Stop putting so much pressure on yourself. Stop trying to sound regal when you pray. Do you think God cares? Honestly, he can speak more clearly and more articulately than you can. You're not going to impress him. He wants you. He already said it. He already proved it. He wants you. He wants to spend time with you. And it doesn't have to be whatever's going through your head right now that might keep you from doing this. It doesn't have to be spending hours on your knees. I can walk with him right now. Actually, I've just got to be honest with you. I am. I'm hanging out with him right now. I like it. I haven't spent a lot of time doing this, so I'm, I'm literally trying to practice what I'm preaching, okay? The second thing, see yourself as you are in Christ. When you have a tendency to want to go that negative route, recognize it as the system that you were raised in, 
You were raised in it. You were indoctrinated in it. It might be all you know. I was raised in a church, and I was raised in it. My wife wasn't raised in a church, and she didn't get it. She went to church, the first church we went to, and she's like, I feel like garbage. Why are we supposed to be here? And I'm like, honey, that's just the way it is. That's the Christian walk. It's the cross we bear. <laughs> Literally, those are, I'm, that's almost a direct quote. Oh, the stupidity, right? <laughs> I mean that spiritual stupidity. So, see yourself as you are in Christ. No shame. No performance. Totally free. You don't have anything to prove because you're not in that shame-based system anymore. So, if you don't have anything to prove, then what are you worried about? And it actually frees you up to do more than you ever could have done in the other system. Can I have just a couple? Just, I know. Sorry, sorry. Okay, I'll hustle. All right. That was a no, by the way. I know, I know that. Look, my wife gives it to me pretty often. So, exercise your freedom. Hello, everybody. Your freedom. Hello? Exercise your freedom today in the reality of who you really are while seeing yourself the way that he does. All of you. Warts, wrinkles, fat rolls, whatever, whatever you're ashamed of. Don't be ashamed. It's, it's who you are. And he loves every inch of you. So let me pray. <laughs> Father, we love you, God, and we thank you. And it's such a relief to know that you're not judging us, God. God, it's such a relief to know that you love us immeasurably, unimprovably. It can't be improved upon. You love us. And we are going to honor you now, Father, by practicing the very thing that you said about us, envisioning who we are. And as we take communion today, Holy One, we thank you for what you did for us. Glorious Lord, and we, Lord, are going to spend time with you and we're going to see you for who you really are. No more shame, no more struggle, no more anxiety. That is not who we are. We are seated in heavenly realms with our God. We are beyond judgment. We are beyond critique. We are full of worth and glory to you, Father, for that. All glory and honor and praise to you, Holy One. All right, we'll go ahead and open up communion at this moment. And God bless you if you need any kind of ministry. Please do go ahead and just stay right up at the at the altar. Okay, God bless.